It isn't only Western companies who are having to well shake themselves down to respond to the threats of these four brick economies. Japan, which is still the second largest economy in the world, is breathing new life into its companies in sectors as diverse as brewing, sheet glass and banking by a series of new acquisitions and mergers. Dr George Olcott, a teaching fellow, has been studying all. And historically, um, they have not just uh, not done much M&A, cross-border mergers and acquisitions. Uh, they haven't done much investment overseas uh, in relation to the size of the economy. And foreign companies have not invested much in Japan in relation to the size of the Japanese economy. FDI flows, this is a statistic for 2007, uh, outbound um, flows represented only 2% of the GDP of Japan and uh, inbound flows only represented 2% uh, of GDP flows compared with um, the United Kingdom where inbound flows represented 45% of GDP and outbound flows represented 53%. So the size is very small. Cultural factors have been very important to the success of the Japanese economy. But in order to compete globally now, even its corporate structures are changing. In the past, there weren't many mergers, and the top brass in the companies were always insiders. Not now. George Olcott again. If you look at the nature of the Japanese organisation and the employment system uh, that developed in the post-war system they are very insider-oriented. Uh, People join the company from university or from high school and stay until uh, the, uh, the end of their careers. And uh, it's very difficult for Japanese organizations to uh, absorb people from the outside. Uh, so even within the domestic context, you don't get very many uh, mergers taking place. And when they do take place, you get a situation uh, such as the current, for example, Nippon Steel, uh, which is a result of a merger in 1970 between Yawata Steel and Fuji Steel, and which is now uh, the world's second largest steel company. But for the last 38 years, you've got a, a president, a CEO of the company, that's rotated one after the other, one from Yawata Steel, and then the next one has to be from Fuji, ex-Fuji Steel. The next one has to be from the old Yawata Steel. And the current CEO is the first one who has broken that mold. So these kinds of uh, uh, considerations, a very equality of uh, uh, merger of equals and so on, are very important in the Japanese merger context. And now these Japanese companies are building up their brand images globally too, just as those top-rated global advertising agencies advise. George Olcott. If you look at a company like Toyota, where the key to success is really in the manufacturing process, uh, there are the, the same uh, uh, sort of cultural issues that are there in M&A do not uh, occur, because what you have for Toyota is uh, excellence in manufacturing. So what they need to do is uh, replicate the same manufacturing process that, that's been so successful for them in Japan uh, and take it to uh, the United Kingdom or France uh, or, um, or the United States. And so long as they keep making better cars than General Motors, Ford, Renault and so on, uh, they will continue to be successful. But uh, when you come to M&A uh, in areas such as food, pharmaceuticals, uh, but particularly something like food, if you take the example of Kirin Brewery, um, 
it's not the same issue for them uh, to take uh, a, a successful uh, manufacturing process in Japan and, and uh, taking it uh, to the UK or to France. Uh, the big investment that's required, for example, in beer is in the brand. Um, and you have two companies, particularly InBev and, uh, and SA Brewery, who over the last 15 years have been very successful uh, in acquiring brands on a global basis. Kirin Brewery, which in 1990 was the fourth largest beer company in the world, is now down to number 12. Uh, and this is really because of cultural reticence, uh, the, the problems of overcoming culture uh, in acquiring brands. So people might look, or the Japanese companies might look anywhere in the globe, really, to find role models that they can copy rather than just copying their own industries and what's happened. They have to look outward rather than inward to see how to progress in the future. That's absolutely right. Um, and that is, and we're beginning to see that. Uh, Kirin, as I mentioned, uh, has not been uh, aggressive during the last uh, 15, 20 years. But in the last year, we've seen them make two major acquisitions, uh, one in Australia uh, and one in the Philippines uh, in the beer business. Uh, the company that I um, am associated with, uh, being a non-executive director, Nippon Sheet Glass, was um, a, 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 by a long way the second uh, player in the glass market in Japan after Asahi Glass and did not have scale uh, and was in a shrinking market in Japan, uh, had to do something um, in order to survive. And uh, in 2006, acquired Pilkington. And Pilkington has uh, had a long history of overseas expansion, uh, had a presence in all the markets uh, which uh, Nippon Sheet Glass didn't have a, a presence in, which were growing, such as Latin America, Eastern Europe, uh, and India. Uh, and through this acquisition, um, managed to establish a presence in, in all those markets uh, and catapult themselves into a top three position alongside Asahi Glass and Saint-Gobain of France. But we haven't seen um, uh, enough Japanese companies uh, having the courage of their convictions and making these very bold moves. Those Japanese mergers and acquisitions have reached the financial sector too, where Numura has taken over Lehman Brothers with all the cultural issues that go with it, including taking on Lehman staff. George Olcott. It's a bit too early to say whether uh, Numura uh, and Lehman uh, is a success. Uh, but for Nomura, uh, exactly the same um, uh, conditions applied. They are very successful in the domestic market, but had not been successful in establishing a franchise overseas. Um, and uh, along came Lehman. This was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for them. Uh, and I think they've, uh, they've seized it very boldly. Uh, I think there will be enormous cultural issues, uh, not just a corporate culture, but I do think that national culture does uh, play a, a strong role uh, in, uh, in the integration process. Um, but I think that they are making exactly the right moves in both terms of pay and also integrating the two brands uh, for the employees of both companies. That's right. They, they kept the employees, didn't they? You know, that was one of their bold moves, not to replace them with their own staff, but actually to continue much with the same. Absolutely. And this is, an, uh, this is a key benefit for... Uh, this is why Nomura bought Lehman, because they, they, they lacked the, those kinds of people. But expanding your global brand during a recession depends on keeping up the spend on marketing. Companies that survived previous recessions all continued to invest in their brands during these downturns, eventually emerging stronger. 
Dr Omar Merlo is a university lecturer in marketing. Marketing is often seen, uh, and, and, and wrongly so, as, as a cost. So if you, if you ask uh, your typical non-marketer, marketing is seen as a cost, as an expense. Uh, and I think that's a very uh, narrow-minded way of saying marketing. Marketing is not a cost, uh, it's an investment. It's something that, uh, that you invest in in the long term. And looking at it, at it as, a, as a cost means that uh, it makes it uh, easily replaceable because it's something that you can easily cut with no immediate or short-term uh, uh, negative effects coming out of that, that cut. Actually, your cash flow will look better when you, when you cut these this supposed uh, costs, uh, and you don't have to fire anyone. So it's a perfect candidate for, uh, for, for cost-cutting. If it's a perfect candidate for cost-cutting, I'm a company CEO. Mm. I'm looking at my balance sheet. Sales aren't good. Mm. We're in a recession. I'll cut marketing. Mm. Uh, I would say you're probably acting uh, in a very short cited uh, way. It's, and and this, is, this is very common. Recent, recent data has shown that uh, since 2008, so in 2009, uh, the, the, the number of companies in the US, in Europe and in Asia that have cut marketing spending uh, is more than half. So more than half of the companies out there are cutting slash in the marketing budgets by, by 10, 20, in some cases 30 percent. Only a smaller number of these uh, are maintaining their current budgets uh, at the same levels as, as last year. And a fraction, we're talking single digits, are actually increasing their marketing in budgets. Uh, so it makes sense because you, 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 you're held accountable. You're asked, we want to see uh, big cash flow. We want, we want to see sizable cash flow. So you need to cut these things that make us look like we, we, we're profitable, of course. And of course, there's always those who buck the trend and manage to build up a successful global business and sell out before the downturn. Theodore Kariakou is CEO and vice chairman of Antenna Group. The Nova Televisual Sale, which was closed on the 15th of October 2008 for a modest $3 million, realised one of the highest ever rate of return on investment in media and confounded falling valuation trends. It uh, generated the highest return or one of the highest return on investment on any media deal globally. Uh, we basically invested $3 million and we received back, we sold it for $970 million dollars at those prevailing rates, or 628 million euros. Basically, we got our money back more than 300 times. How you set up the company was phenomenal too, wasn't it? It, it was set up in, in 1994. It, it was part of your family business. And, and you sold out in, in 2008 for $970 million. Now, that's speedy by anybody's rate of return. How did you build up a media company so successfully, so quickly? Well, on, on the Bulgarian case, just to be specific, we acquired the company in 2000. Uh, it was a nation, it was a Sofia-based, actually, Sofia-based regional station. We hired good management, we put our international know-how, invested in programming, we won a nationwide license, and we grew the company carefully, but aggressively, to be the, the clear second leading player in the market, but the fastest growing. And at the right time, we approached investors, that were, it, it made, made sense for the strategy to invest in Bulgaria. And uh, we sold just before the, the beginning of the, of the economic crisis that we're facing today. So how important is foresight in business? And how do you pull off that staggeringly successful deal? Theodore Kariaku has a few tips. Bidding process is like an auction process. So you want the bidders to know that the other bidders are around too. To, make, to, to find out exactly what's the maximum price they're willing to offer. 
Remember, a buyer wants to buy at the lowest price. A seller wants to get the highest price. The only way to maximize price is create tension between bidders. You keep your information confidential. You run a fast process. You stick to your process. You, keep, you stick on your word. Make sure uh, you have bidders available up to the moment you sign. And what intrigued the audience here in the lecture theatre today was the fact that you said never let bidder one know that bidder two is there and never let bidder two know that there's a, a bidder one. It always keep them guessing. Absolutely. Minimising uh, the flow of inf information of the bidding process and other, uh, other competitive bids is key. Uh, let them uh, find out themselves. Let them figure it out. You don't want to give any information to any bidder that the other doesn't have. That, that's the only way to get a fair value and find out what's the maximum price a bidder is willing to put in. In a changing global market where traditional boundaries are breaking down, tomorrow's leaders need to be collaborative and to work in networks or so-called nodes. That's just where an environment like Judge Business School can help. Professor Arna Demir is its head. In our MBA programmes, we always have uh, tried to uh, offer an opportunity for our students to get some leadership development. We believe that um, uh, our graduates uh, will take up uh, important positions in industry or in government or in uh, non the non-profit sector and will give actually leaderships to, leadership to teams of people uh, in these organizations. And we try to um, help them to develop their own talents. It's like with many things in life, uh, leadership is not something that you completely learn, that you have to have a bit of a talent for it. But what we try to do in a business school, in particular in our MBA program, is actually a given opportunity for our students to hone their skills as a leader. Now, then one can ask oneself the question, what is a leader or what makes you a leader? Yes, indeed. You might say a leader is born. Yeah. Um, and as I, I, I think, actually, that whether it's born or whether it's something that you do very early in your development as a child, but it, there is actually something... Uh, where you see people, they come in your office and they have the charisma and they have the capabilities of being a leader and others are yeah, more experts or have a different role to play in an organization. Uh, but I've been thinking quite a lot about what is it when I talk about leadership that I really am looking for. And I've come to the conclusion after many years and after reading a lot of papers about it that in the essence leadership is about being able to create change in an organization. Um, there are many people that are able to manage an organization on a going concern, that are able to administer, and maybe that's the sense of business administration, that are able to administer an organization, keep it pushing it a little bit, keep it going, uh, let it e evolving. But from time to time, we really need change. And, this is a moment, I mean, you just have to look around in the economy. This is a moment we need change. We need to have people that actually can um, see in which direction to go, that actually can uh, convince people to make a drastic uh, change with the past and actually give them the enthusiasm to try to uh, change their organization, change their products, change their relationship with their customers, and in some cases, actually, for some politicians, change the world. And Judge Business School has built up its own philosophy on how successful leaders need to work in a global world and one that is challenged economically. Arna Demir again. We have a particular view on what leadership is all about and we call it collaborative leadership. Um, 
perhaps that's a little bit in the genes of the Cambridge University, because as you know, the university is actually not one single institution, but consists of the university itself, but also the 31 colleges and a lot of other institutions. And there are probably more than 50 independent autonomous uh, organizations that together somehow form what we, from the outside, will call the University of Cambridge. Giving leadership in such a complicated, complex uh, organizational structure requires actually to work with peers, to influence uh, peers, to, the word that I've used a few times uh, in the past, also to seduce people into doing things, to convince them, uh, to influence, as I said already before. Um, and that's the type of leadership that we try to um, share with our students here. Uh, and I believe actually that that is a type of leadership that the world will need much more in the future. Uh, I have many reasons why that is, but um, I think to just give four or five. First of all, we see that the world is or, or internationalizing enormously, and not in a way where one country is given leadership and the rest is dancing to the tunes of that country, but if you see what's going on in the current economic environment and where you see that, yes, President Obama wants to give leadership to the world, but others are resisting that, you understand very quickly that on an international scale, people work in networks, in networks that of peers, of people that, as I said before, try to influence each other, try to convince each other of their proper ideas. And I think what we see um, in the present times, uh, enrolling in, at, at a political level and at the uh, macro level, is the same for organizations today. That is, many of our uh, organizations, even small organizations, become very international. But they don't have this pyramidical structure anymore, whereby the person at the top tells everybody else in the organization what to do. But you see that these international organizations are often networks of nodes with a strong node maybe here in the UK and one in India and one in China and perhaps in Brazil. And where if you want to make the organization move, where you have these nodes, uh, where you have them to have, have them to work together with each other uh, in order to achieve results. However, even with all that management theory, even Demir has to admit luck plays its part in the success of a company. I always tell my students that uh, Napoleon, which, who is uh, known in this country probably as a French dictator, but in France where I lived before, uh, was probably more known as an important emperor who changed uh, a lot of things and who has more a positive view uh, or a positive image uh, than here. Uh, or in my own country, in Belgium, for that matter. Um, but he's quoted to have been said, uh, saying, um, how you, when he was asked how you choose your generals, he uh, is quoted to have said, uh, or is uh, supposed to have said, uh, that he uh, choose the general that has consistently more luck than the other ones. Now, I use this often uh, to remind my students that in the world of business there are unknown unknowns, thing that happen, things that happen and that you never had thought they could happen. Uh, there is this uh, surprise factor. Why did this happen? Where does this particular influence come from? Why do we uh, run into this problem? And you cannot predict everything. You cannot plan for everything. You cannot ask yourself when you start developing a new strategy. You cannot ask yourself all the questions that you need to ask yourself. Uh, you have, sometimes have to move on and say, we'll see how we react when we get into trouble or when we uh, encounter a problem. And that's where luck 
quote unquote luck plays a role that is the ability to see this perhaps a little bit earlier than others and being able to uh, fall back on one's experience uh, to react to these moments of uncertainty, uh, these moments of surprise. And that's maybe what I say uh, uh, when I say we also have to count on our luck. Luck is being able or is being prepared for the unpredictable. And once you're confronted with the unpredictable, having the flair to react to it and to uh, make the best out of a situation. Well, perhaps using your military analogy, having a brave heart. Yes, that's right. That's in a, a good way of saying it. So it seems even those fast-emerging brick economies will have to work hard on their corporate structures and skills to turn those huge internal markets to their advantage. And perhaps, with a little luck and good business practice, the Western economies might be able to creep in there and do a bit of catch-up. Only time will tell. <laughs>